Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. My name is Sarab Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Oh, that's my line. Uh, Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we begin as we need to go on. <laughs> uh, welcome back to yet another episode of Moment of Truth. We hope you guys have had a great week. Last week, we released a special bonus episode of the podcast. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Tell us if you would like us to do it more. Uh, Jake's going to be moving up to D.C. soon. He's been remote for the entirety of the, the Wuhan communist flu. So we've decided uh, that we may do this again. So let us know. Would you like? Would you like us to shoot the breeze? Did Nick look really stupid on the show? He's, he's going to clip that part out because he doesn't want to be on the show anymore. I understand, <laughs> but you can conscript him into doing it. That's if true. our adoring fans demand it, uh, Jake, just like the rest of us, is a little bit of a narcissist. So Yeah, tell uh, him how cute he is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he has that, that child star good looks. Anyway, um, uh, it's funny. Right before uh, we, we, we started the episode, we, we were being told about a story about someone who, who works at an undisclosed conservative <laughs> oh, ink God. institution who apparently, like, turns on a VPN. I think that may have been an exaggeration to listen to this podcast, but that it is his lifeline to more to more based vistas at his place of work. So if you're like that and you would like to reach out, all of our emails are on ProtonMail. So shoot us an email at uh, either sarab at americanmoment.org or nick at americanmoment.org. And we will, we will bring you into the, the underground cargo cult that is American Moment. What DC. have you been calling it? Like the order of the gear? No, 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 no. That's dumb. That's that's only what I call it when I'm, <laughs> I'm listening to someone else. But look, we are, we are helping build community uh, for people in D.C. who think like us, who are dissidents in this town. So uh, reach out to us. We're, we're doing uh, social stuff, uh, professional development stuff for people who get it. Uh, if you know interns that are in town this summer that could use from uh, uh, you know a community of people who are like-minded, we know that it can be hard to have uh, the beliefs that we do, the nationalist populist vision of what the future of the Republican Party and the conservative movement need to be. Send them our way. This is what we're for. It's not our job to create a mass movement of anything. There's other people who are good at that. It's not our job to craft original ideas on what needs to be done on policy. There's other people who are good at that. But what is our job is to give special and differential support and aid to the people who are our friends and allies in this town that will build up institutional influence and expertise so that the next time we have the ability to staff a congressional office or a presidential administration or whatever, that we aren't undermined by people on the inside. That is what American Moment is about. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your loved ones, tell your rich neighbor to give money to us, AmericanMoment.org slash donate. But without further ado, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the guests that we're going to have this week on Moment of Truth. Uh, this week, we're, we're honored to have on, I think, our first sitting government official. Uh, we have FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Uh, he uh, joined the FCC during the Trump administration after being a general counsel and a GS scale staffer there uh, under Commissioner Ajit Pai and, and then at the time Chairman Ajit Pai as well. And he immediately made a name for himself as one of the most entrepreneurial and interesting people on the issue of big tech at FCC. He used his bully pulpit for something good, not to just set himself up for a sweet lobbying gig when he's done. In fact, uh, he's told us stories about how basically every time uh, he says something, he lowers the chances of him getting a fat payout when he leaves the FCC one day. Uh, and we hope he he stays for a long time because he's been uh, on the leading edge of everything from what we need to do about big tech, how we think about the future of governance when it comes to technology, non-discrimination for conservatives online, and so much more. Uh, we had a wide-ranging discussion of 
everything from China to uh, our innovation policy to what needs to be done on 5G and so on. What is 5G if you think it causes coronavirus? Maybe it does, but it also does a whole bunch of other things that he uh, tells us about. Yeah, like know. give you cancer. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> we disavow. Oh, this podcast boy. does not represent the views of the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, Nick, other than uh, that, oh, what what did you think of the episode? Uh I have to say that Commissioner Carr is probably the only person that I have um, ever heard that dreamed of working in one of the, you know, federal government bureaucracies. Yeah. Certainly the only person I've ever heard of who dreamed of working for the FCC. Yeah. Um, we had a great conversation today uh, with him. Uh, you know, he, he's he's a fantastic guy, very easy to talk to. Uh, we asked some pretty provocative questions so i'm very glad uh he put up with us for a little over an hour yeah. um at the end nick accused me of trying to get him to admit to being the unabomber so stay tuned for that <laughs> <laughs> i did do that and i asked him you know what we should do about you know banning porn from the airwaves i mean it was uh oh oh and i asked the question you've always been wondering do i really have to turn my phone off before we take off for a flight um Definitely tune in for that. Uh, it's a question I've always wondered, and I can't believe it took me like 10 years to ask. Absolutely. So without further ado, we'll now go to Commissioner Brendan Carr. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Commissioner. Great to be with you. Thanks. We always like to start with how our guests got to the point where they are now. How, how does one become a commissioner at the at the FCC? How'd you, how'd you end up here? Well, in my case, it was very much a, a Forrest Gump style <laughs> approach. So I uh, went to undergrad uh, at Georgetown, went to law school, actually here in DC at Catholic to specialize in telecom, got a JD and a certificate in telecom, worked at a law firm for a number of years, clerked for a judge and thought I would go into the FCC and get a little bit of government experience and then pop out after a couple of years. That was back in 2012. Uh, and I'm still there. So I started out as a GS staffer in the Office of General Counsel at the FCC, got the chance to work for uh, then Commissioner Ajit Pai. And then when Ajit was chairman, uh, I was made General Counsel of the FCC, which was a really fun job. And then at that point, uh, I got nominated by President Trump to be a commissioner in 2017. And I've been doing it ever since and having just uh, a blast. So for us, um, uncultured rubes, <laughs> What is the FCC? What does it what does it do? What are its main responsibilities? And what does a normal day look like for you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the easiest way to think about the FCC is to think about it sort of as a mini Congress in the tech and telecom space. So we free up the airwaves that you need for 5G, and there can be all sorts of crazy political and technical fights along the road for that. We administer a $9 billion a year fund called the Universal Service Fund, which is designed to close the digital divide, everything from uh, supporting internet builds in rural parts of the country where there's not a private sector case mm -hmm. to subsidizing low incomes. And if uh, entities wanna merge in the telecom space, we play a role similar to what the FTC or DOJ would play. They look at it from a competition perspective. We do that plus a public interest space. So everything from wireless service to wireline to the media companies in terms of the spectrum that broadcasters use, we play a, a regulatory role there. One of the big issues we've been doing over the last couple of years is 5G, making sure that the US can be competitive with China and our other global counterparts as this new technology, this high-speed wireless service gets built out. This may sound like a stupid question, but 
I feel like we hear about 5G a lot. I mean, my dad worked in the te- works in the telecom industry. I heard about it growing up. I heard about it 10 years ago. Yeah, but- about how it makes you magnetic. Right? Well, yeah, <laughs> so, something like that. It causes the coronavirus, whatever it might be. Uh, why, why does 5G matter? Like, why why is it that a, a you know slight increase, maybe it's not slight increase in how fast our internet speeds are or wireless speeds are, is this almost civilizational seeming issue that there's great global powers competing over who gets the technology first. Why does 5G matter? There's been a lot of hype around 5G over the last couple of years. I think we're at the point now where it's starting to deliver. To your point, it's a better, faster, wireless service. I think the way to think of 5G is sort of in three buckets. One is the least interesting, which is everything you can do on your cell phone today, you can do uh, in a way that is much faster and much more seamless. The second way is more competitive in-home broadband. So now 5G will let you do wirelessly what before you had to have a fiber or other high-speed wired connection to your home. So where you may have one or no choice for high-speed home internet with a 5G delivered service, you now have competition and that is, that's great. The third bucket is what I describe as sort of this new wave of innovations. And it's hard to describe, but think back 10 years ago when we were on the cusp of going from 3G to 4G. Think about how you got across town back then, right? You had to call a phone number, wait for a cab. Uh, you know, think about how you transacted money. You'd have to go to a, a physical bank. You'd have to stand in one of those rope lines, use one of those pens that was leashed to the table and always out of ink. The app economy was unleashed because of 4G and it disrupted all those aspects of our lives and addressed those pain points. You have Uber and Lyft on the phone. You've got uh, Square and other ways of transacting money right on your phone. So that transformation from 3G to 4G, where there were pain points in your life that you didn't even really recognize as pain points, the 4G and the apps that rode on it solve it. We're going to see that next new wave of innovation with 5G. Could be AR, VR. You know, there's a lot of leaps that are being made in that technology. Telehealth, there's a lot of leaps. So it's hard to describe to people other than um, that same transformation in our lives that 3G to 4G did. We're going to see that again with 5G. And the good news is, the networks are mature, they're getting mature. Uh, 5G just went into the iPhone uh, in the last year or so. And so it was a bit of a chicken and egg for a while, uh, but I think we've reached the, the tipping point here pretty soon. So I wanna ask you about, uh, you know, a lot of people talk frequently uh, about kind of the difference between America and China's approach to 5G. Um, you know, a lot of people would say that, um, you know, the Chinese state is is kind of supporting Huawei and ZTE and other uh, Chinese telecommunications companies kind of in their push to to get a very large market share. Uh, explain for our listeners, you know, really simply, what's the danger of having, uh, you know, Chinese telecommunications dominate the market? Yeah. So you're right. The communist regime is supporting Huawei and Huawei is supporting the communist regime. There's a couple of, of ways to answer this question. Um one is, I'll go back, I was on a, a road trip uh, as part of this job up to a, a small town, Great Falls, Montana. Uh, that's where Maelstrom Air Force Base is located. And I met a woman there, Colonel Jennifer Reeves, and in her charge are you know these hundreds of ICBM missile silos that are dotted all across Montana. And there's nothing up there other than wheat fields and big sky country. Uh, but spread across that missile silo are cell towers running high power Huawei gear with all sorts of equipment and technology on there that aren't necessarily tailored to the 
sparsely populated communities that are up there mm. in northern Montana. So there's I'm a lot of sure data. It's a coincidence. Exactly. There's, <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of data that can be collected. We looked at other entities that are ultimately owned or controlled by Communist China, and our records show things. For instance, there was data being transferred from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., uh, and that data went from L.A. to Guangzhou, China, before being delivered to Washington, D.C. And I'm mm. not a, a cartographer, but I don't think the L.A. to Guangzhou to D.C. is the most efficient route to take traffic. So there's a lot of information. Again, 3G to 4G to 5G, we're putting so much more data and information on the network from health to banking uh, to critical infrastructure that there's a lot more avenues for entities that would do us harm uh, to do that. And what we've seen is there's just too much unity of interest between Huawei, ZTE, and the communist regime. In fact, as a matter of law, Chinese law, they have to comply with any requests by the communist regime to turn over data. So there's a very real and significant threat. Um, and the Trump administration deserves a lot of credit for finally showing the strength and resolve needed to reorient our foreign policy or technology policy to the threat posed by Huawei and ZT. We took some significant steps over the last couple of years, but we still haven't gone far enough. We have additional actions at the FCC that we need to do to further secure our networks. Thankfully, this is bipartisan. You know, this was a this was a bipartisan miss for years in Washington. Uh, the the threat posed by the communist regime. There was an appeasement approach. This idea that if we you know uh, gave them a taste of participating in global markets and free markets, that uh, they would change. Uh, in fact, it's been the opposite of that. The communist mm -hmm. regime has infiltrated so many of these uh, international bodies. So. I think the Trump administration turned it, but I think you look at Senator Schumer and others, there's real bipartisan interest in standing up to China. So I hope we, we follow through. Well, I think that was the, wasn't that a part of uh, the president's justification for uh, banning TikTok was that, you know, they were legally obligated by the Chinese government to turn over any data uh, requested. Yeah, that's. That's right. I mean, these devices um, collect so much information, even mm -hmm. Apple devices. What people don't realize is even when your phone is off, it's tracking information. When you get in a taxi cab, uh, your iPhone will know that. They have barometric pressure sensors that know when a door closes in a taxi. They know when you're going up an elevator from the barometric pressure sensors. There's all sorts of data being collected. If you can imagine all that data getting shipped directly back to Beijing and correlated, um, there's a real security risk. And there was a news uh, recently of the uh, Biden White House pulling back on a Trump era executive order that looked to take some action against TikTok. And I want to read more about what's being done there. But if we're backsliding on that, that's, uh, that's a bad sign. This seems like one of those instances where the common sense approach uh, speaks more to the truth, or at least the spirit of the truth than what the expert class would tell you. So like, we shouldn't have a high powered, highly sensitive uh, radio tower for 5G near our ICBM supply. Like you can see a certain kind of liberal expert type being like, oh, you conspiratorial rube, how do you say that? <laughs> Turns out that there's probably something to be worried about. Oh, my data is getting routed through China on the way. Well, I'm sure it's just for like completely efficient reasons. You know, <laughs> server farms are out there. But again, it, the, the common sense here would tell us that that's, that's probably not true. Um, What's the time horizon on how long these privacy concerns have been a real issue? Um, how, how long have our elites been asleep at the wheel? You know, the situation in the U.S. is is not as bad as it is in other countries and other continents. If you look at South America, um, 
many of their telecom markets are dominated by Huawei or ZTE gear. Uh, the same with Africa. Uh, I was in Kenya a couple years ago, actually drove about two or three hours outside of uh, Nairobi down a dusty, dirty, bumpy road to get to a very small town. And you get to that small town and there are plastered throughout the town, Huawei banners and advertisements and billboards. Um, so they have dominated that market. 5G is essentially the, the digital version of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and so they, they view this very much as, a, as part of their economic and national security interest. In the physical space, Belt and Road, um, they engage in financing and other techniques to essentially build ports for countries, build roads for countries. And then when either political opportunity arises or financial pressure arises, they can foreclose on those physical assets. Well, Huawei and ZTE are going to be very similar in my view, except rather than foreclosing on the physical port, it's the data that travels over all these networks, sensitive data uh, that could ultimately be owned and controlled by the communist regime. Mm -hmm. My uh, first cell phone was actually, I had a Huawei cell phone in Honduras <laughs> at 15, <laughs> operated by uh, you know, the, the, like the Tigo network and everything. So I'm assuming uh, the Chinese Communist Party already has a compromise at uh, uh, filled with what I said uh, at age 15. Yep. Um, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, I, I think it's fine. I was a missionary kid. I was not like doing anything crazy. Um, so, you know, you're talking about how Huawei has infiltrated a lot of these, um, you know, third world countries in, in South Central America, um, in Africa as well. What do you see as the as the benefit, uh, you know, to the, the Chinese government specifically of having uh, the data of you know people in those countries what's what's kind of the benefit for them there well there's a couple interests i mean one the communist re regime wants to have you know jobs for its people keep them employed uh keep them away from protesting and so by this massive subsidization of huawei and zte um that's part of how they do that and they can go into any country and undersell any other vendor so part of it is the economic uh, survival of the communist regime. But yeah, I think a part of it is this is at the end of the day, spy gear. Uh, and there's a lot of information that they can gather. There's a lot of nefarious activities they can engage with uh, through this gear in those countries. And frankly, uh, Europe was a bit slow on this as well. This was something that the last couple of years, then Chairman Pai spent a lot of time in Europe talking to our allies and convincing them that there's a very real threat from Huawei. At first, we weren't making much uh, progress, but the tide really turned really around COVID-19 when Europe started to really see um, that communist China is willing to lie and cheat and say anything to uh, maintain their uh, control over that country. Uh, and so that's when they started taking some stronger actions themselves about getting rid of Huawei and other gear uh, in the continent's networks. So our global campaign to have our allies see the light here has been working because frankly, there were concerns in the US that maybe we should stop sharing intelligence information with our mm. allies if they had Huawei or ZTE because we couldn't guarantee that if we share something with the five eyes and if they have Huawei or ZTE gear, that that's not going to ultimately go right back to Beijing. There's that old phrase about the real scandal is what's legal. Um, how much of the issues when it comes to China, their 5G deployment, their technology deployment across the globe, how much of that is, strictly speaking, allowed? Because that's the terms of the agreements that people have gotten into. It's just that those agreements are terrible 
and how much of it is actual subterfuge, them doing things that they're explicitly not allowed to do uh, and, and, and breaking the, the contracts that they've signed. You know, we're certainly concerned about subterfuge and we've had, uh, you know, briefings in, in skiffs that get to some of that. But a lot of this has been the scandal is what's legal. Again, that example of uh, L.A. to Guangzhou to D.C. I mean, there's no rules per se on routing other than you're supposed to use the, the least cost route to get there. And similarly today, you know, as I said, we took a firm stand the last couple of years. We prohibited what we call subsidized Huawei or ZTE gear from going into our networks. Subsidized meaning subsidized by federal dollars. But we did not go so far as to stop private companies from using private funds to put that exact same gear. So go back to the Montana example. You could have a carrier A that takes federal funds for some reason. They're prohibited from putting Huawei gear in and have to take it out. Carrier B that might be sitting on the same tower right next to it using private funds can put that same gear uh, right in the same point in the network. So actually this month at the FCC, we're voting to start a process to close what I call the Huawei loophole because the source of funding isn't the problem, uh, it's the gear itself. And actually, Senator Rubio and others have been helping to sort of point that out and lead the way. Well, isn't this one of those situations where there is no such thing as as private money when that private money is coming from a quote unquote private company that is wholly entangled with the Chinese Communist Party and isn't actually held to account for a, a profit motive in the way we understand in the West? I think that's right. And we're, we're addressing this on multiple fronts. As I said, we've... Uh, prohibited the use of the, the the gear going with federal funds. We're looking at stopping the loophole of private funds. The other step that we're taking is to give U.S. carriers a choice when it comes to 5G network gear, because a lot of them said, look, A, I wasn't aware of the security threat. B, this is significantly cheaper than the other stuff that's out there. One answer to that is we're helping to support the development of this new technology called ORAN. And the way to simplify that is to think of it as um, a software approach to do the same thing that the bespoke Huawei gear used to do. So it's good in the sense that it um, is disruptive to the market. It gives people uh, the ability to compete with Huawei without needing the 20 or $30 billion R&D that it takes to produce hardware. And it plays with enduring American strength in coding and software. So we think this introduction of ORAN, which again is a, a software-based alternative to the Huawei hardware is going to be another part of mitigating and addressing addressing the threat from the communist regime. So there are a lot of people that will say, and in fact have said to me before, that um, you know, banning a, a company from a foreign country from doing business within the United States is inherently unconservative and anti-free market. You know, oh, saying that uh, Huawei is a threat to national security and shouldn't be allowed to do business in the United States is is unconservative. It's not what Ronald Reagan would have wanted. Um, what's your answer to that? Like, what, what's what should we be doing about this yeah. issue? Welcome to the realignment. So I think this is part of the uh, the change in Registered thinking. Registered trademark. Yeah, <laughs> that, is, uh, that was slow inside the beltway. I think a lot of the thinking here and the think tanks here were dominated by fundamentalist libertarian thinking. And it was great for big business and it was really bad uh, for many parts of this country. And I think there is a you know new cadre of conservative leaders uh, that are looking to take a different approach here. And I think this is an example, our approach to China. I think it's, you see it in our approach to big tech, this idea that if a big company is doing it, you know, who am I to say anything? I think that type of thinking is, is thankfully being challenged on the right by a new way of approaching these issues. And that's, that's a great thing. Well, and of course, most of the people that are pushing this kind of rhetoric in DC are 
you know, receiving money directly from the coffers of yeah. Google. So it's like, it's, it's hard to, you know, take their point seriously. But uh, yeah, and I think it, it back up even more, you know, you look at what's going on right now with the Apple iPhone. So we have said for decades, never again when it comes to genocide. And yet when you look at what is going on right now with the Uyghurs um, in the Xinjiang region, uh, it's genocide. Trump administration said that. The Biden administration has said that. So one idea that I've offered is we should take a stronger approach at the FCC. When any electronics comes into the U.S., we have a role to play. You can't operate anything that emits RF energy unless the FCC reviews and approves it. It, it used to be on the back of every piece of electronics. Like it used to be on the back of iPhones, the little FCC yep, logo. Like, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, baby monitors, everything. Anything that emits any electricity, we uh, sign off on through our labs. And up to now, we've only looked at it for what frequency band does it do, does it operate on, is it going to interfere with something else, and it's been a very limited review. And what I've said is, at a minimum, we should um, put all these entities that seek FCC approval, including Apple, uh, to make to a higher standard to show that there isn't forced labor anywhere in that supply chain. And again, I think that's part of you know standing up to the threat. I look, I think if we flash forward two or three years from now, people are going to look back and wonder why more people uh, didn't do more and say more when it comes to uh, the genocide taking place in China. So I think, you know, as an FCC commissioner, uh, I would like the agency to to do more to make sure we're not letting the communist regime profit by approving gear that was built with slave labor. Yeah, I Totally agree. I think that's great. I know Sarah wants to ask about big tech, but I have one last question just about the networks and everything. Is, is this where you transition to Arctic policy? Uh, so I'm going to get there. I'm, I'm on site now for, for a little later. But um, you, you've mentioned working with the uh, Biden administration a couple times. Uh, I'm curious. Um, a lot of people listening, you know, may not think this is a this is a good line of questioning. But I'm curious, like, what Democrats are good on this stuff, like. Who are you working with now under the Biden administration that that, you know, is is 90 percent of the way there uh, and, and kind of agrees with our line of thinking on the issue? Well, the FCC is a five member agency. Uh, there are three that can be of the president's party two um, of the other party. So right now there's two Republicans on the FCC, myself uh, and Nathan Symington. But we only have two Democrats right now because the Biden administration has not nominated a third Democrat to the FCC. So we're 2-2. So what that means is that we are doing probably what the American people would expect of a government agency, which is we're working together. We're compromising. I'm not getting everything I want. And frankly, I shouldn't. I'm on my way to being uh, on the two end of a 3-2 commission. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's consequences that, that come from the election. But at the moment, we are working very well together. We're compromising. And again, at least up to now at the FCC, uh, the Democrat chair, the acting chair, Jessica Rosenworcel, she brought forward this idea that I put forward that we should look at the equipment authorization process and um, close this Huawei loophole. So knock on wood, um, we've seen bipartisan support for standing up to China. But again, I'm wondering whether that, that's going to hold, particularly with the new Biden executive order that looks like a potential softening on TikTok. Hmm. Zooming out, um, maybe in a more partisan direction, uh, you have been fairly entrepreneurial on thinking critically about how conservatives approach the question of technology policy more broadly. Uh, walk us through, what is what is your worldview when it comes to the question of how, uh, what are the political decisions that we should be making, the policy decisions that we should be making in the technology sphere to remain relevant and, and consonant with the time we find ourselves in on these important issues that are always evolving, that are always on the bleeding edge? 
Well, the, the good news or the bad news is as a commissioner who's appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, that means I'm not elected. And so I don't have a, a you know donor group that I need to be responsible to. I don't stand for uh, election. So that gives me a lot of freedom to think through issues. Like a lot of conservatives uh, in D.C., I came up through a very much libertarian strain of thinking. Um, and what I've come to see increasingly is the idea that we all embraced so clearly in the 1980s, although I was pretty young in the 1980s to be <laughs> sure, um, was that the only threat to individual liberty comes from big government. And that makes sense at a point in time where in the 80s and early 90s, you had such a, a gap between what the government can do to you in terms of your individual liberties and what a private company could do. I think that has fundamentally shifted. In no way should we think that big government is good. We need to be cognizant of that. But the idea, particularly with big tech, that you have these corporations that today have more control over more speech than any other entity in history, the idea that the only thing that conservatives should be looking at is limited government and eliminating government power while largely ignoring the threats posed to individually from individuals from big tech, I think is part of you know how I've come to approach and think about these issues. And I think big tech amassed the enormous amount of power that it has by rising up through blind spots in the Democrat and Republican thinking. When you look back to the Obama administration, 2008 to 2012, 2012 to 16, this was a period of time of immense concentration of power in Silicon Valley. And the revolving door between the Obama White House and Silicon Valley would give you whiplash. It was moving so quickly. And a lot of the reason why I think it, it rose to power was not uh, uh, you know, in spite of the Obama uh, competition policies, but because of it. There was a ideological mind merge where the Democrats looked the other way because of the ideology of a lot of these corporations. And for Republicans, on the other hand, the blind spot there was this idea that, well, if a big business is doing it, who am I to say anything? The only response I can have is to sit on my hands. And I think for different reasons, um, Republicans and Democrats alike are rethinking that approach. And that has tracked a lot of my thinking on this. I do think that the threat posed by big tech is, is different than what we've seen before. And the orthodox conservative response of do nothing is no answer at all. And so I've tried to um, articulate my thoughts on a path forward. Last year, um, you know, I was uh, out front on calling for Section 230 reform. We still need to do Section 230 reform. We haven't done that. But it's also very clear to me at this point that we need to go much further than Section 230 reform. I think we need to look at imposing some sort of anti-discrimination requirements on big tech. I don't know that you need to put them in the bucket of common carriers, as Justice Thomas has suggested, or look at public accommodation law. Those are basically labels that you uh, put on certain conduct where you have imposed anti-discrimination obligations. I think the key is that we impose anti-discrimination obligations, regardless of the common carrier label, really, on big tech. And I think we can do that. The federal government just this week, uh, Senator Wicker uh, announced that he's working on a bill that would impose anti-discrimination on big tech. I'm going to look to work with states as well that are interested, just like Florida recently passed a bill uh, to take a look at imposing anti-discrimination on big tech. I think that's the future for, for us um, in, in terms of what we should stand for as a party. Obviously, a lot of conservatives are silenced on uh, these platforms, but it's not just that. You have the shutting down of the Wuhan lab uh, uh, theories about the origin of coronavirus. You had you know Microsoft recently um, censor entirely 
the images of the Tiananmen Square tank man on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. So that was crazy. There's a lot of political discrimination that goes on. I was against, assured it was just an error. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that, it was an accident. That goes on against conservatives, but more broadly than that, uh, you know, diversity of views is the lifeblood of democracy, and we need to get back to that. It's a cultural problem, but I also think it's a it's a law problem, given that 230 essentially blesses the ability of big tech to shut down ideas across the ideological spectrum that they don't, that just doesn't fit with their orthodoxy. I'm so glad you said that that Section 230 reform may not be sufficient anymore because there's this super strange thing that I noticed over the last couple of years where the second Republicans were out of power, all of the squishy think tanks, institutions, congressmen that were, were holding out were basically being the barrier to big tech reform when we had political power, we're like, well, now it's time for moderate Section 230 reform. It's like, you know what? Screw you. Like, you, you, don't, you don't get to now say that it's now time for Section 230 reform when the problem has gotten so much yeah. worse. Um, well, you've been at the center of this basically the entire time this has been a live issue in American politics. I think the first memory I have of this being seriously considered beyond just like weird internet forums, uh, the question of censorship and, and the power of big tech was a hearing where Senator Ted Cruz um, was, was interrogating some big tech executives about, I think it was like diamond and silks, like uh, <laughs> ability to reach an audience. Um, what wh Walk us through, like what's been the timeline over the last couple of years? Like uh, what were the first kind of uh, signs that something was awry and, and how have people kind of joined along at various stages to to more of your perspective? It's a good question. I think there's a, a few different ways to look at the timeline. I mean, maybe in, in broad brushstrokes, if you go back to the 2016 election, whatever concerns people thought they had with censorship around that point in time, I think it was below the noise floor. And when you had all of these conspiracy theories arise, um, particularly among Democrats, post-2016 to try to explain away their loss at the ballot box. You had a lot of people point to Facebook and Twitter and say, well, you know, uh, 60 million people voted this way because 200 people saw a political meme on Facebook. Yeah, Macedonian teenagers made a meme. <laughs> exactly. So I think it was, it was, this was sort of social media 1.0. This is where the era was when I think it was a Facebook or Twitter executive or former one said that we represent the free speech wing of the free speech party. They stayed out of it. They let ideas flourish. They let people to decide for themselves. Um, again, that didn't go over very well among Democrats. You saw a lot of hearings and pushing for greater censorship. Um, there was a lot of sort of pushback. And I think flash forward to 2018 and 2019, I think that those efforts worked. And you saw a lot of these social media companies, I think, engaging in discriminatory conduct, perhaps as a, as a makeup for um, sitting on the sidelines in 2016. But I think the real watershed moment for conservatives came at two points. Uh, one was the spiking of the New York Post story on Hunter Biden, the idea that you could not share even a link to the story. Mm -hmm. uh, the New York Post um, newspaper being blocked on Twitter for a week or two you know, right in the run-up to the election. I think that um, really turned the tide. Right on the same point in time, you had Justice Thomas start to write about Section 230 reform, the power of big tech, and how courts have misinterpreted Section 230 to give them too much power. And when you have sort of um, someone of Justice Thomas's stature uh, talking about Section 230 reform, when you see the New York Post get blocked entirely, I think that gave permission to a lot of 
more mainstream uh, conservatives say, you know what, there's something here. And if Justice Thomas is out there saying it, it's not just, you know, this person over here uh, uh, on the edge. Um, it's okay for all of us to talk about it. So I think that was a real watershed moment. And now you're at a point in time in which almost any number of elected members of Congress on the conservative side are going to speak up when there's censorship. There's a lot of bills right now for 230 reform. There's bills for anti-discrimination. That was the watershed moment. Now, Republicans and Democrats both want reform, but we're pulling on opposite ends of the of the same string. Republicans want more speech, less censorship. Democrats want less speech and more censorship. So I don't know that we're going to get there uh, on a bipartisan basis for the real fundamental reforms we want, but maybe we can come together on a bipartisan basis, at least on transparency or something like that. But that's why we need to run in parallel with state law efforts like the Florida bill uh, and some other states that are also looking to take action um, right now. I'll tell you what the most radicalizing moment was, I think, for most uh, normal people, like my friends and my family, you know, back in Minnesota. I feel like we're was... being excluded from the definition of normal people there, <laughs> to be clear. I mean, we're in D.C. Of course we're not. Normal, you know? uh, but it was when the president of the United States got banned from from Twitter. I remember where and Facebook we, and yeah, Instagram. I remember where home. we were. We were um, doing a guys weekend in West Virginia when he got like he got slapped with that 24 hour ban. And then right after that, he just got the leader of the free world was straight up deleted from Twitter. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't even ever imagine that happening, uh, you know, to President Obama or, or, or right. to anyone else to be completely deprived of the number one way that he communicated with the American people, you know, regardless of the optics of that or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I want to ask, like, is, is, is this going to be the big movement for the Republican party moving forward? You know, maybe if we regain power in 2024, 2028 or whatever, I mean, are we seeing a repeat of, you know, Teddy breaking up the, the you know railway barons uh you know in the early 1900s is it, is it going to be like that level of you know this is a central plank of the republican party platform now i i hope so uh when you talk about the the president trump incidents i would uh, agree with you certainly uh particularly when you look globally that's where we saw responses from merkel and others who got very concerned about uh, the concentrated power uh, that these companies have I don't think there's any going back. I think when Republicans get the gavel again, whether it's in the House, the Senate, um, in an agency like the FCC, which again requires um, a change in, in presidential administrations uh, for a Republican to get the gavel there, I don't think we're going to go back to where we were in 2017, 2018, and 2019. I think Section 230 reform is table stakes for Republicans. And I think going beyond Section 230 is table stakes for Republicans through some sort of anti-discrimination law. There are, you know, First Amendment interests at stake. So we got to do this in a smart way. As I talked about this before, there's there's really sort of two core steps here. One, is there interest and desire for those um, in government to take action with respect to big tech in this instant? Two years ago, I would say no. Now I say yes. That's a huge step. Now, step two is how do we take that desire to do something uh, and actually move it into positive law, into legislative action that's going to survive court review? Because we're seeing in Florida right now, the Florida anti-discrimination uh, bill uh, for has been sued by big tech. Now, I think regardless of the outcome of that particular litigation, I think that that case 
And the arguments that big tech is making in that case is providing the roadmap for additional states to step in and take action. So again, when I was at the FCC, there were three Republicans. We did not have three votes for Section 230 reform, uh, which is the minimum number of votes you need to get something done at the FCC. Um, I have a hard time seeing that there wouldn't be three votes for that um, the next time we have three Republicans at the FCC. Obviously, you can't tell us all the details, but from a fairly early on point from when you became an FCC commissioner, you were outspoken when it came to this issue. Are there any stories about how you got pushback from people who you thought were on, quote unquote, our side that you can tell us? Any any oh, any experiences <laughs> of how uh, a movement that's theoretically around to represent the interest of conservative voters, conservative ideas betrayed them. Welcome to Doc's Hour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me let me lay down and, and talk about it. You know, there, name names. No I'm kidding. There, there are people on the uh, it's hard, right? Because there's people on the right who who have these, you know, libertarian views that are earnestly held. And a lot of what I'm articulating is contrary to their views. And they they have their views in good faith. Now how do you separate from that the fact that a lot of these entities are are funded by big tech? How do you separate from that? I think sort of a what strikes me, again not to play psychoanalyze other people, but like there does seem to be a tendency among some on the right to aim more of their fire at other people on the right um, than sort of, you know, equal opportunity. So, and I think early on when I sort of articulated these ideas about Section 230 reform, I think the the approach that a lot of people took was just to ignore it. They said, well, this is an out there idea. You know, the House isn't looking like they're interested. The Senate's not looking like they're interested. There doesn't seem like there's a vote of the FCC. Let's not give it much, much oxygen. Um, but things are very, very different now. And I think a lot of people sort of jokingly say, you know, maybe we should have taken him up on some of those ideas he was articulating in 2019 because the 2021 ideas that a lot of people are articulating on the right um, go even further than those original ones. Yeah, so uh, I'll name check somebody. Uh, <laughs> Ajit Pai seems like a pretty good dude. Yeah. Like he, more of a libertarian guy, you know, whatever. Um, he's always kind of been like one of my favorite like Trump administration members just because yeah. he seems normal unlike most people in this town like seems like a good dude I yeah. went to him for Halloween yeah I was about to bring <laughs> really? that up yeah uh, I'll show you the outfit later <laughs> it was a great costume actually it yeah. was it was it was great um so for people like you know Ajit or you know whoever else works on the conservative side um in the communication space or in the telecommunication space um for good guys who are not being like bought out, you know, by these massive corporations, what's the sell? Like, what are the two to three bullet points that say, listen, man, I know you're a good guy. Here's why you should believe what I believe about this. Yeah. Well, when it comes to Ajit in particular, I would not sleep on uh, on him when it comes to his views on, on reigning in big tech. I'll simply go back to the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Ajit as chair, it takes three uh, votes of Republican members to get reform done. Um, and Ajit um, leans in pretty heavily when it when it comes to big tech. In fact, when we went through this, you know, net neutrality uh, uh, debate back in 2017, Ajit very clearly linked together uh, the uh, uh, net neutrality push by big tech and big mm. tech's own violation of net neutrality. So I think he's one of those that's been on the leading edge of seeing the harms from big tech and, and, and led the FCC at a point in which um, a critical number of conservative thinkers weren't quite there yet uh, when it comes to reigning in big tech. But I would think, again, the most uh, the compelling argument to me is, you know, 
as conservatives at our core, we have to be for individual liberty. And while the greatest threat to that individual liberty forever came from government and still can because the government can, can jail us and take our lives away, um, we cannot be blind to the threat to individual liberty that comes from the concentration of, of power. Um, so. So let's talk about net neutrality. That was probably the first time that people <laughs> are people listening learned. to this over the internet. Are we are we are we live? Is no, this like we're, we're, some we're, episode of Lost where we actually did die in the net neutrality <laughs> apocalypse and we don't know it? It's right. I, I was I was assured that there'd be bodies strewn across the street across America if net neutrality was not implemented. But in fact, it it it, it is not the law of the land. Um, a, just walk us through your experience being involved at the FCC when the net neutrality uh, fight happened and uh, your retrospective on on how all of that went down, lessons learned, and and I guess a little bit about what the issue is itself. Uh, it was wild. <laughs> I you know was confirmed to be in the commission in August. I think we moved to an order, uh, quote unquote, repealing net neutrality in October. And I mean, it was like everything from like funny to death threats. The chairman, she probably had legitimate death threats. Uh, I mean, he had to go to 24-7 security. Basically, people were showing up at his house, threatening his kids. We had bomb threats uh, called in at the FCC during the meetings. This is and, what Reddit does to it, man. Yeah, I, I mean, was about <laughs> to say, you, 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 you mess with Redditor's pornography or something, they tend to get very upset. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was one of the, the greatest examples of the left uh, selling the American people a lie to just get energy up and raise money. Uh, we were told, CNN ran a headline, the end of the internet. And what has happened? Uh, prices are down. Internet speeds have doubled since then. Uh, the digital divide has narrowed substantially. More Americans are online now than ever. We had a black swan event with COVID-19 where there was just an overnight surge in network traffic as we re recreated our lines, lives on the internet. Uh, and America's internet infrastructure withstood that surge. So it was, it's sort of like climate change uh, to some extent in terms of, you know, how quickly the earth is going to end, except rather than saying, well, it's, it's 10 years left to act, you know, net neutrality exposed very quickly um, how the left misrepresented what we were going to do. So... Shifting gears a little bit, I want to ask you about something. We talked a little bit about this in our very early episode with Terry Schilling. Um, and I actually don't know your opinion on this. I'm, I'm kind of asking you this cold, hoping you'll give a good answer. Um, asking about uh, decency, public decency laws, um, you know, for, for things uh, like pornography uh, specifically. What's, what's your view on those, um, on implementing those on, you know, what, what should the conservative response to this? Um, I believe the appropriate word is smut uh, <laughs> should be. Well, it's funny. So I, I grew up, uh, you know, in the Eminem age, uh, and, you know, e e even, you know, before Howard Stern and all of these, you know, fights with the FCC, um, I think I was an intern at the FCC during the uh, Janet Jackson halftime oh Super Bowl <laughs> instance uh, in the early 2000s. Those types of issues just haven't arisen to the commission level in about 10 years. I don't know if that's a function of culturally um, where the country has sort of shifted. Um, 
or if it's a, a, a perception of First Amendment law and limiting what the FCC can do. But there's also a technological perspective here in that a lot of those rules you talk about apply to broadcast content, um, so sort of network television, ABC, CBS. But now we have these competitors from all sorts of different platforms, not just cable, but over the internet, satellite, those technologies don't have the same indecency rules that apply. So it's a very odd regime that we have right now where you can't broadcast content X on CBS, but you could broadcast content N on a cable channel. If you're clicking through, you don't necessarily know the difference. So I think there's, you know, culturally, the country is in a different place with some of that stuff than it had been before. There's First Amendment challenges as well that come with that. Um, but it hasn't been something that's that's arisen for us to decide in a, in a very long time. If you had your way, what changes would you make to the way we structure our regulatory regime on that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it doesn't make any sense to have this set of rules apply just to broadcast television and nowhere else because the division between those technologies is not apparent to the user. It used to be that you said, well, if you bring a television into your house, well, if you bring cable television in the house, you're sort of consenting more clearly to bringing in the smut, as you put it, than if you just have a you know TV with rabbit ears. I don't think that that holds anymore. Um, so I do think if you're going to level those types of requirements out, I would assume there's going to be a leveling down in terms of it. Because frankly, over the years, the FCC has been getting out of the business of um, regulating the content on the airwaves. Um, and frankly, there's a, there's a disturbing trend that we're seeing right now where people are sort of going to the FCC and trying to get us to shut down um, political speech they don't like. We had a petition filed to deny a radio transfer in South Florida that was going from a perceived progressive owner to a perceived conservative owner. Spanish language radio station and a bunch of Democrats in Congress filed a letter to the FCC basically saying, we don't want more conservative voices going into South Florida ahead of the 2022 elections. Block <laughs> this sale. Uh, we had the Democrat prosecutor in Baltimore file and ask us to investigate the local Fox, not Fox News, but Fox TV station, because she said they were running too many stories about her. So there is this increasing illiberal trend, obviously, to shut down speech. And people are increasingly looking to the FCC to do that. And I think that's a bad trend. So I don't think we should send signals that, yeah, if you don't like something that you see on TV, come to us and we'll shut it down. Again, my whole viewpoint is more speech, not less. And that's how I carry it forward to big tech. I don't want big tech censoring. I don't want the government encouraging big tech to censor Democrats or Republicans. I want more speech. And that's consistent uh, across the mediums. So, I, can, I can see from your smirk that I haven't completely <laughs> satisfied or directly you, you answered want, your I question. I say that it should either be illegal or you should have to have some uh, some type of age verification. But it's okay. okay. Like, I don't think I quite got there. We don't we don't have to agree with everything. <laughs> That's right. I agree with like ninety eight percent of everything else yeah. that you've said. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's all good. As I, I danced around, I can see from his looks that he knew I was dancing around. <laughs> I wasn't going to push you on it. I was gonna let you it. <laughs> Just a little tease to see if you would make news on our on our podcast. But yeah. I, I, I guess um, so. So you were early on the challenges of big tech uh, yep. on the on this uh, you know ability for them to censor uh, relative to the rest of conservative movement, uh, relative I think to the rest of mainstream politics as well. Um, what is something that you feel like you're early on right now that you're paying attention to that no one else is that in two, three, four years, unless people start listening to you sooner, everyone's going to be like, man, wish we had done something about that. What are the emerging trends that have you concerned? Good question. 
Well, I, it's, it's some of it is what we talked about before, which was 230 was a leading edge issue a year ago. Uh, I think it's more of a mainstream issue now. I think affirmatively imposing anti-discrimination obligations on big tech is the next emerging issue that I want to try to put some thought into how do we do this thoughtfully in a way that can survive review. I think going even further when it comes to um, you know the supply chain with forced labor, I mean, again, right now, iPhones pour in, um, all these electronics pour in, um, and we don't have any vetting going on right now for forced labor. I think two years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to say, how did we not do more sooner when it comes to genocide and forced labor in our supply chain? So I think that's one we have to do. One that's less political is telehealth. You know, I sort of leaned in early at the FCC on this idea of what we call what I what we call now connected care, which is at the FCC, we were focused for a long time on how do we get internet connections to brick and mortar hospitals. That's great. It, it, it helped people a lot. But the new trend that we saw uh, early on was people getting care right in their home, whether it's a smartwatch, a Bluetooth connected device, an iPad doing a um, mental health visit with a counselor that was 200 miles away that you couldn't get access to physically. So that trend which we sort of viewed as uh, basically the healthcare equivalent of shifting from blockbuster video to Netflix, right? You don't have to go to a brick and mortar facility anymore. Um, you can get care wherever you are. I think that trend is going to be, eh, well, maybe not pun intended, but, but life-changing. It, it is and will continue to improve patient outcomes and significantly drive down costs. So healthcare everywhere delivered remotely is going to be, I, I think, really, really big going forward. So I have one of those plans. I haven't had to use it. Yeah, yeah. I'm watching your watch right now. I'm, you know, <laughs> your rings aren't quite closed yet for the record. Not, so. Hey, listen, it's only yeah. 5 p.m. I'm going to work out when I get home. Man. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I have it set to burn a thousand calories a day. It's a lot. It's a lot <laughs> yeah. to get through. Um, I wanted to ask someone this question for a very long time. The not being able to turn your phone on while you're flying. Is that like real? <laughs> or is it so? Or is this it is not? so. This is very funny because I had that same view before I became a commissioner, and now that I am a commissioner, I, I try to travel a lot for this job, and I always have my phone. I'm always like one of the last people to turn off, and I'm always sort of waiting for it to become like an issue. And be like, well, you can't do that, FCC law, and all. You know, stand up. Like, well, actually, I'm a I'm a commissioner of the FCC, <laughs> and, and I'll have you know that you know, yes, we have that rule, but do doesn't you have make a badge sense. You can pull out like your FBI. <laughs> exactly. So. I, the, the reality is where there may have been interference concerns in the past, what I've been told by the engineering bureau at the FCC is like, it's, it's largely not, and it's, it is, it is not an engineering issue. Like if someone forgets to turn their, their phone uh, on airplane mode, the plane is not going to come down. Uh, people are going to st still communicate. I think it's, it is more a, um, well, again, to go back almost a first amendment perspective, it's a airlines, you know, private property dictating the rules of what you can do in that. And it's more, I think, managing people, so you don't have uh, people talking loudly next to you and things like that, then it is a, a technical issue. Man, that was always my worry. Like every time I turn it on, you know, when you're coming in for landing and you're like, yeah, I know I'll get one bar of service right now and I'll give yeah. my text like two and a half minutes right. before everyone else. <laughs> Order that Uber first. Yeah, I'm always afraid like, <laughs> Am I gonna kill everyone? Yeah. Like, is this is this my fault? No, you're not. But if you do, I didn't say it. <laughs> okay. yeah. that, that, this this is not FCC sanctioned advice. Right. That, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we can insert the disclaimer. This is not you know endorsed yeah, yeah. by the FCC or whatever. Yeah. Um, so we were talking a little bit before the show about uh, you know some of the trips that you've done uh, to Alaska. You know, yeah. which I just uh, returned from a couple of weeks ago. Um, what is the benefit of having uh, I mean, not just in Alaska and in, in rural areas in general um, of having high speed 
uh, internet access uh, in local communities. I think there are a lot of people that would, a lot of Google-funded people that would say, um, oh, if people want to have fast internet access, they should just move to a city. Uh, what's your answer to that? Yeah, a couple of answers to that. One is I spent time out on uh, Dutch Harbor on Alaska. This is a, a an island in the Aleutian chains about, well, probably not even halfway out, about a third of the way out. Uh, it's where they filmed Deadliest Catch. And I visit a small healthcare clinic on this island and they have a, you know, high speed connection there. And if there is an injury, uh, they need a, a CAT scan with that internet connection, they can send that data back to experts and decide, is this life threatening or is it not? If you don't have that, you have to take the precautionary step of putting someone on a life flight back to the mainland. And that can be anywhere from, I don't remember the exact number, but it was big. It was like sixty dollars to $90,000 to get sort of a, a custom life flight. So you can put the investment in to get a high-speed connection there, or you can eat sixty dollars to $90,000 uh, whenever someone has a potentially life-threatening injury. There's a school on the island that I visited, uh, and there's access to you know remote learning opportunities that way uh, as well. So there's all sorts of economic um, healthcare um, advantages that come from having internet connections in, in rural communities. Similarly, I was in Utkiadvik, um, Utkiadvik, which is the northernmost uh, community in Alaska. It's right up on the, um, um, the the Arctic Ocean up there, and they're getting uh, new high-speed undersea cables that are being built out there. And there's a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which you know can include national security as we're looking to use. Um, the waterways up there a lot more mm -hmm. uh, for uh, military and other purposes and potentially uh, for economic activity um, as there's fewer, uh, less ice coverage up there, um, that high-speed connections can help enable that. So there's a lot of people that, yeah, that don't believe we should have internet connections everywhere, that it's not affordable, but it's sort of table stakes of being an FCC commissioner to being uh, committed to getting 100% connectivity out there. Yeah, those are the, um, those are the, Quintillion ones, right? The some are quintillion. There's some other yeah. ones that are going up. Um, in uh, Dutch Harbor, for instance, I believe it might be GCI that's building out yeah. the fiber there. Yeah, can't that's... let you guys nerd out about Arctic stuff too much. I have a, <laughs> I, I have a the I have podcast a listenership just really, really <laughs> yeah. went to the floor. We there. lost half of our listeners. <laughs> just, um, it it sounded like uh, the telehealth. Uh, uh, you know, aside that you, you did uh, answers this question in part, but being at the FCC, uh, you, you kind of have a, a front row seat to some of the the bleeding edge of, of what technology can do to actually improve people's lives. It, look, be entirely honest, I, I think both Nick and I can occasionally be a bit techno pessimist about the ways that it, it hurts humans' abilities to be fully themselves and to flourish. But what's some of the technology that, that you get to see on a daily basis that is still you know not really mainstream that that is uh you know very much in early days but that you think is is going to really improve people's lives that's exciting um that's that's cool to watch i think there's a lot of running room left for um, ar vr augmented reality virtual reality um, and again think about your pain point in your daily life today so for for me for instance i hate going to the grocery store but I like to eat, so I got to go to the grocery <laughs> store. Particularly with COVID, it was a pain for a lot of people. And there's online options today, but they're not that satisfying for a lot of people. So imagine instead you put on, you know, a pair of AR VR goggles, which hopefully will be, you know, not too different than actual eyeglasses in the not too distant future. And you can see 
not just a generic grocery store, but your grocery store that you're used to. And I'm sort of weird. I like to go down my grocery store aisle like a particular way and helps me think through what I want. Yeah. And you could do that sitting on your couch with AR VR. With haptics, you can actually pick up a piece of fruit and you can feel it and you can say, all right, I want this piece of fruit, throw it in your virtual basket and it's delivered. Uh, or clothing. Now you have to order clothes. You don't know if it fits that well. But again, there's AR VR technologies that will do this for you in a way that is going to lead to, you know, better custom clothes. And people can say, who cares? But there's just, there's all these pain points in your life that AR VR could solve. It's been a bit slower, to be honest, the AR VR development than what um, I might've expected two or three years ago, but I'm optimistic there. The other thing we're seeing right now is we've approved these new generation of low earth orbit satellites to go up, SpaceX, uh, Starlink offering being one of them. That has the potential to be very disruptive in terms of dramatically reducing the cost um, for serving that last one to 2% of the country that um, doesn't have internet access in a, in a very cost-effective way. And again, that could help us out with this $9 billion a year that we're spending right now to try to close the digital divide, at least in part. So I think that technology is going to be interesting. AR, VR is going to be interesting. A lot of people point to connected cars, but again, that's one that seems like it's had a bit longer run room than what um, you would have anticipated a couple of years ago. I guess on the on the flip side of this, uh, you know, putting aside some of the partisan uh, concerns about censorship and speech, um, what is it about, you know, our our technological era that that has you more pessimistic? What is it you don't like about how society has changed because of technology? Are you trying to get him to quote the Unabomber no. like, <laughs> on air? Like, no, what not, is your I, deal? I, I, well, <laughs> you know, there's certainly an addictive quality to this um, <clears throat> when you're in the attention economy. You know, whether it is intentional or unintentional, you know, eyeballs is the game. And there's a way that you can just, well, speaking for myself, spend too much time on your phone, spend too much time on Twitter. I mean, heck, I scroll so much, my thumb gets sore sometimes. You know, I got to like- You are do... in fact on Twitter. Exactly. You know, I got to do something sometimes to get off of it. So I think, you know, the distraction that comes from that, I think is, you know, not the healthiest thing. That's not all the fault of big tech. There's, you know, there's other reasons for it, but I do think there's there's an addictive quality that takes us out of you know the reality of everyday life. That's not great. You know, I personally don't put all of that on big tech. I think there's some you know personal responsibility that that comes with that as well. Uh, that's one downside. Sometimes like, man, I just wasted an hour scrolling on the weekend, not when I'm at work. I'm sure. Uh, you know that I would rather have spent you know doing something else in the real world. Yeah, we never tweet at work. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> uh, Commissioner, uh, where can people kind of learn more about you? Where can they kind of follow your your uh, your writings, uh, the, the commentary you're making? Uh, how, how can people keep up with you? Yeah, uh, on Twitter is probably the best way, uh, at Brendan Carr, FCC. Uh, I tend to put my op-eds out there. Uh, when I travel, I do a lot of the, the stuff um, there as well. Um, so that's, that's the best place to start. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're a busy guy. And uh, I think this has been an extremely informative uh, discussion. We have on a lot of uh, people who have, uh, you know, Jeremiah's against our ruling class. And we still <laughs> love that. But uh, I think you're one of the, the first few serious technical experts we've had on. So thank you for, for taking the time to dumb things down for, for Nick. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, exclusively for me, for sure. <laughs> and uh, thank you for coming. Enjoyed it. Thanks. This week, we want to talk about a great piece that we have up on AmCanon uh, called Why Republicans Must Rethink Antitrust. Now, Rachel Bovard is one of our favorite people. 
in Washington, D.C., really in the entire country. Uh, I even joke sometimes that she's our favorite board member, though we love them all equally. Uh, But she wrote this fantastic piece for the American Conservative that really got people talking, um, that really dives deep into how we need to start rethinking our policy of antitrust when it comes, especially to our biggest technology conglomerates, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and so on. Obviously, Rachel's been on the bleeding edge of what it means to be a conservative, properly understood, even a, a person for liberty, a person of liberty, like person of color, um, when it comes to the issue of technology. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Look, uh, we've got wow. feedback that people like it when we loosen up. So I'm just going to start saying ridiculous <laughs> things moving forward. But I highly recommend you check this piece out. It's on AMCAN and AmericanMoment.org slash A-M-C-A-N-O-N. And I think it goes to uh, an important um, approach that that we really care about here at American Moment. Look, we have never claimed that we are taking on the mantle of what the future of conservatism needs to be, what the future of the Republican Party needs to be. We care about that. We have perspectives on that. We talk about it sometimes on this podcast, but that's not the reason why I go out and try to raise money every single day, why Nick and Jake sacrifice so much of their time, why Emma decided to join our team. Uh, look, we're a bunch of snot-nosed kids. We're like 24, 23, 22, and 21, respectively, I think. I think we literally are. Emma's all- 23. So there's 23. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Two, two, 124, one, two 23 year olds and one 21 year old. Did I just age docs? Yeah. Oh, I man. guess that's fine. Wow. Um, and so it's extremely important that we take the energies that are thriving around issues like big tech or critical race theory or what else uh, uh, issues are, are really popular in the base right now and make sure we convert them into actual policy wins that represent the interests of the American people, the conservative base and the Republican Party. If we don't do that, then we're just pissing in the wind to be entirely candid. And uh, politicians, leaders, and grifters of all sorts will use that energy. They'll say the right thing to get all the credit for it politically and then proceed to do nothing about it. And that'd be a shame. And it's it's part of the reason why we appreciate Commissioner Carr so much. And we actually talked about this a little bit after the episode. The reason it's so important that he's in the role that he's in right now is he can take that energy on the big tech issue, share that same instinct that the base does feel like they are they are his people that the the base is is someone that he has a moral responsibility to represent and turn that into policy that represents their interests that's what we're trying to create out of the young people that are involved with american moment and it's so important that we do so um, because if we don't then frankly we don't deserve to govern yeah i think that's a large part of why a lot of you probably don't see um Gosh, I always hate to bring up the iceberg analogy, but like this podcast. We get it. You like the the Arctic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, my favorite biome. Uh, But this podcast is is the tip of the iceberg, Um, really. I mean, this is this is probably one of the only aside from that and your, um, you know, incessant twittering, uh, really the only like public things that we do. Uh, Majority of our work is is under the surface. It's you know, uh, training people uh, who we definitely don't want to name, right? Because we want them to be in positions and be able to get into positions where they can actually do stuff. Um, And it's also like putting people in those positions. We can't tell you those wins that we're having. Um, We can't, you know, necessarily say we put so-and-so at X organization and they're really passionate about these things and they're going to change, you know, the, the face of conservatism forever. Um, sometimes these things are, uh, are better left unknown. Um, and you know, maybe we can take the credit like 50 years from now. <laughs> um, but I'd argue that 
we are not trying to put a new face on conservatism. Um, we're not trying to advocate for newfangled ideas. Uh, I would argue this is what conservatism is, uh, support of, you know, strong families, a sovereign nation and prosperity for all, uh, is a, is a, you know, when you, when you look at kind of the broad arc of history, uh, it's a very traditional view yeah. of conservatism. Well, it's why I hate the term new right. People have used it to describe our world. I mean, there's so many names that fly around, right? National conservative, post-liberal, integralist, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I have a term which is a, against political taxonomical bugmanism. Like obsessing. I know o- what one of those words Yeah, is. I understand. Uh, <laughs> like don't, don't like obsess over labels. Like you are for good things and against bad things. That should be your politics. And, um, What's especially the reason I hate the term new right is because the idea that we should have a sane immigration and trade policy and, uh, you know, not send American children to die in the death sands of the Middle East. Those are not new ideas. There were patriots going back decades, centuries even, that have believed that exact same thing. People like Pat Buchanan, people like Jesse Helms, people like Jeff Sessions, um, you know, even Dwight Eisenhower, who was the or like, you know, moderate Republican of his time, could have run in either party, you know, spoke about the excess of the military industrial complex. Uh, you are not alone in the long chain of history for advocating for these ideas. And don't let anyone uh, who, who uh, uh, you know, subscribes to, to use a, a slightly paraphrased term that our friend Mike Anton uses, a, a crackerjack vision of, of what conservatism is. Uh, crackerjack conservatism is not the full history of conservatism, is a particular anachronism of the last 15 to 20 years, and you should treat it like that. Um, your legacy is the legacy of the founders of this country, its greatest leaders, and sane political thinkers going back to antiquity. And scene. <laughs> I mean, like, actually, I don't have anything that, like, yep, cool. That's great. <laughs> I 100% agree with you. There's nothing to add. I mentioned this in the intro, but once again, if you are an intern or a young uh, employee in, in Washington, D.C., that feels like you don't have a community of other people who think like you do, please make sure you reach out to us. Again, my email is sarab at americanmoment.org. You can find how that's spelled on the website. Uh, Nick's is nick at americanmoment.org. Um, if, you know, Emma at Amer- uh, Emma at Emma at Emma at AmericanMoment.org. Uh, if, if, you, if you're a young woman and feel like you'd prefer talking to her, um, we are here to be a resource to the staffers in this town who know what time it is, who know what needs to be done. So please make sure you reach out to us. Keep an eye on social media. Uh, subscribe and rate five stars. Uh, ask a question in your five-star review. We'll answer it. Email it to podcast at AmericanMoment.org if you wouldn't prefer to have it public. Uh, and we will see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.